Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Book of Acts, chapter 17. The uh, title for the sermon today and the, the, the main idea of the sermon today is the birth of the Thessalonian church. So we've all heard of First and Second Thessalonians in your New Testament. Um, I have to be honest, I feel like First and Second Thessalonians don't get enough attention amongst all of Paul's letters. So they're wonderful letters that we need to spend probably more time in. But this is the birth of that church in, in, this, in these verses, uh, Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Before I read the passage, I'm going to put the map on the screen from maybe two weeks ago or so. You may remember this map. Now, I know that your eyes cannot read much on the map. So here's a simpler version of the exact same map. Isn't that better? So, th- this is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey uh, with Silas, and he picks up Timothy there in Lystra, and they meet up with uh, Luke at Troas, and they end up, uh, we saw two weeks ago, they got to Philippi, and uh, when they were in Philippi, they started the church there, and as you heard last week, they were horribly mistreated, and they had to flee away, and they traveled from Philippi to Thessalonica. Now, if you look up here on the map, they look like they're, uh, they look like they're really close together here, very close together. But you're dealing with about 100 miles, just this. And uh, when they leave Philippi, you can look at more of a three-dimensional map here, perhaps. Philippi is right here where they were imprisoned in, in the stocks and singing at midnight and the earthquake like last week. They escape Philippi and they make a one-day journey to this place in Amphipolis. That was about uh, how many miles? It was about 30 miles away. And then they traveled another 27 miles to Apollonia right here. And there is no record of them preaching or teaching here. There is also no evidence of a synagogue in either of these two cities. So it's hard to know for sure uh, what happened. And then they finally, they traveled the last part of their journey, which was another 35 miles all the way to Thessalonica. And that is where they, they end up. Um, just imagine making this hike where they probably stayed one night in each city as they went, going an average of 30 miles a day. I just stop. Let's humanize the Apostle Paul. What had just happened to him? Remember Scott's sermon last Sunday? He had been beaten with rods who knows how many times. He had been put in stocks in a prison, had no sleep, and the next morning, they're out. They're gone. Very soon afterwards, they're gone. So Paul walks a hundred miles with Silas after having been brutally beaten in a, a night in those stocks in that prison. And uh, I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm not agreeing with John Mark leaving the Apostle Paul, but I understand why, okay? I understand the temptation to go, Paul, we can't keep up with you. We got to go home. So anyways, that, that's where the Apostle Paul uh, ended up, and uh, I'll put back here on the map. And let's just read our passage here for today, Uh, Acts 17, this is the word of the Lord, verses 1 through 9. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd." 
And when they could not uh, find them, lost my spot. When, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come down here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay, that is our text for today. The the three points for the sermon, so this is the birth of the Thessalonian church. The three points are these. Number one, you have reasoning with proofs, reasoning with proofs. Then you have reacting with prejudice, reacting with prejudice. And then you have repenting with passion. So reasoning with proofs, reacting with prejudice, and repenting with passion. And those really are the three groups we want to look at for the sermon for today. So the first three verses cover this first point. Paul was in the synagogues reasoning with proofs or evidence. And let's reread the first three verses. Now when they, pause right there. You remember the we passage a couple weeks ago? We went from Troas to Philippi. That means the, the writer, Luke, was with them from Troas to Philippi. But it looks like Luke stays in Philippi because we will not see Luke again until people are back in Philippi, where we shows back up. So right now, Luke is probably back at Philippi, uh, staying there. Some people speculate Luke may have been from Philippi. No way of knowing that for sure. But the rest leave. Now when they, verse 1, had passed through these two cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, about a hundred-mile journey, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, let me, let me just say a couple notes here, a few issues just to think through. Number one is this. I, I did work through this a little while. So, how long were they in Thessalonica? You could argue they were only there for three weeks because it says three Sabbaths, and then before long, they're chased out of the city. By verse 10, they're escaping by night to, to, get, to get out of the city. So, how long were they there? Well, it's impossible to know for sure, but let me give a brief argument for it being longer than three weeks, and I'm not disagreeing with the Bible. Oh my goodness, I'm not disagreeing with Luke. I don't think Luke is saying that they were only in the city for three weeks. He says they were in the synagogue for three weeks. He doesn't mention anything that could have happened after that. So, what what most commentators think, and I mean conservatives, we're not disagreeing with Luke at all, zero. Uh, what, What seems to have happened is they went into the city, and for three Sabbaths, exactly like Luke said, they spoke in the synagogue. But then the synagogue was not very pleased with them, and they were no longer welcome in the synagogue. So they went outside the synagogue, and they started evangelizing complete pagans in the area. And we actually think Paul had most of his converts from the pagans in the area. And then, after maybe a couple of months went by, Paul is then chased out of the city. So Luke doesn't actually tell us how long he was in Thessalonica. And the reason why I think this from the Bible, two big reasons. Number one, in Philippians 4, I think it's verse 16, we are told that during Paul's stay in Thessalonica, the Philippian church, you know, right up the road there, the Philippian church right down the road, 100 miles away, they sent Paul uh, goods for his physical needs not once but two different times. That doesn't sound like a three-week total stay, right? I mean, if the church sent him for his physical needs, then they would have had to hear back, and they would have to send someone else with more physical needs. That could be easily a couple-of-month period. Also, 
If you've read First and Second Thessalonians, Paul speaks so tenderly of the relationship that he had. He says, I worked night and day when I was with you so that I would not have to basically, you know, rely on other people for my needs. I was working every day. Uh, I was so close to you like a mother with her children. I wanted to share my whole life, not just the gospel. That doesn't sound like something that would happen between three Sabbaths, which is actually two weeks, right? Three Sabbaths is two weeks in a day. So I don't think he was just there for a two-week period. I think he was in the synagogue for two weeks, but probably in the city for perhaps a couple of months before he was chased out of the city. So there was time actually for Paul to, uh, to get to know them. Also, in 1 Thessalonians, we'll get to this at the end of the sermon, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks of the majority of his converts being full-blown idol worshipers, which would not be the people he talked to the first three Sabbaths. The, the, they were not idol worshipers. They were, in, they were in the synagogue. They didn't worship Roman gods. So, probably that evangelism would have happened after his time in the synagogue. But let's look at Paul's method here. I love some of the words that, Paul, that, that Luke uses of reasoning with proofs, you could say. Uh, look at these words, verse 2. So he's in the synagogue, and Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Your translation may say he was giving evidence, he was explaining, he was giving proofs, when we think proofs, don't think exactly something like proving a math problem, or, you know, it's like, there, there it is. Everyone can agree that that's what it says. It's not quite that kind of proof. This is what Paul would have done. Remember, earlier in Acts, he was asked to speak and give the message. It's not clear, it's not indicated that he, he was asked to preach or speak at this synagogue. So, it sounds like he just was able to get the, the, the Scriptures that they have in the synagogue and start talking through passages of Scripture and pointing them to Jesus. All he was doing was making plain what Scripture said. And we don't have to guess very much about what Paul was saying because Acts so far has given us an account of what the apostles said to Jewish people. Luke doesn't have to say everything every time. He assumes we'll pick up what's been said previously. So, Paul no doubt talks about Abraham, Moses, talks about David, Solomon. He talks about the Psalms that point to Jesus, that God's King would sit on His holy hill, that, that the nations would come to Him that He would rule over the nations, that Isaiah 53, that He would suffer for sins, for the sins of His people. And you say, why was this so hard for the Jewish people to grasp at this time, or for anybody to grasp, but especially the Jewish people who believed in the Old Testament? And the answer is, again, they thought, and you'll see it in this text, they thought of Messiah in almost entirely political terminology. Freeing Israel from Rome is both religious and political. It's, 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 it's setting God's people free. It's redeeming Israel. It's, come on, get the Romans out of here, and the Messiah will one day do what David did with the Philistines and Goliath. Get rid of them. Uh, he, he will do what Solomon did, reigning in peace over, over many places. And so, they are just not thinking of someone who dies for sins. They're thinking of someone who triumphs over their enemies. And what Jesus did was He did both. He triumphed over our enemies by dying for our sins. So, you say, how? How, what Roman soldier was killed when Jesus died? They were the ones killing him. And the answer is, the real enemies were angelic. Satan, demons, Jesus triumphed over them through the cross, Colossians says, and He triumphed over our ultimate enemy, which is ourself. Your greatest enemy is not Satan. You know, some people want to blame Satan for everything. You know, the devil made me do it. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden, and it has not stopped. We want to, every, under every rock is the Satan did it, and Satan made me do it, and we just want to, some people will see Satan and demons everywhere all the time, and other people just ignore them altogether. I think those are the two extremes. But in, in reality, ultimately, my greatest enemy is not Satan and demons. 
It is my evil heart that inclines towards evil and that needs to be redeemed and rescued. And so Paul is pleading with them to trust in Christ as the one who died for sinners and was raised. But what I love is the way he does this. He reasoned, he explains, he proves or gives evidence. You can think of passages like this. We were just looking at 2 Timothy the other day and Thursday night, and what does Paul say there? He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He must be able to teach, kind, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they might escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. First Peter says, the wonderful passage, in your, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always being ready to give an apologia, an, an apologetic, a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason, there's reason here, for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who slander your good, uh, so those who slander your good reputation in Christ would be put to, put to shame. Or Colossians, when Paul says, listen, pray that a door would be open, that I could preach the Word boldly and clearly as I ought, and, and pray that we would have mouths that are gracious, full of gracious words, seasoned with salt, that we might know how to answer everyone. Uh, second second uh, Corinthians, Paul will say a uh, similar thing. I, I just love this. You don't have to turn there, but I just love the way he says this. He says this. Listen to these words. But thanks be to God. Paul writes, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's Word, trying to just make a profit off the Bible, we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Just sincerely and clearly laying forth what Scripture says. Or later in the same letter, Paul says this, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ uh, as Lord with ourselves as as, as your servants for Jesus' sake. And Paul will just say, listen, I just want to make the truth clear and plain. So what does he do? Paul just points to the text of Scripture in the synagogue over and over. He goes, let's, let's read Isaiah 53 again. I know they didn't have chapters at the time, but he would have said the equivalent of, let's read Isaiah 53 again. Who is this person who was, whose message was not initially received, who has believed the Word of the Lord? This one who is like a, a root out of dry ground. Who is this person who has an unpromising beginning, looks like a nobody in a nowhere place? And then it says he was despised and rejected by others. But then we are told that God took our sins and put them on him, and he never did anything wrong. There was no violence or deceit in his mouth. And it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God's wrath and judgment, his righteous judgment fell on this innocent one with, because of our sin, and then he was buried. He, his, his grave was, 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 was a borrowed grave with the rich in his death. And then he came to life again because it says he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. If he was buried, how could he have prolonged days? He had to be raised to new life. And then it says that the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And then he will, by his knowledge, the righteous one will make many to be accounted righteous because he will bear their iniquities. And Paul, I could just see Paul walking through that verse by verse, not trying to make a show about himself, just saying, who is this describing? 
It doesn't make sense to say it's the nation of Israel because they're not without sin. They're not without violence in their mouth. They're not without iniquity. It doesn't make sense to say Israel took the sins of Israel. That doesn't make sense. That, no, it's a sinless one bearing the sins of others. Who could this be? Was it Isaiah? No, it wasn't Isaiah. He was sinful too. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. Couldn't be Isaiah. Who could it be? Who could it be? It's this man, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary. I know you have not heard much about him, but he was crucified by the Romans, and you might think that discredits him. It's actually the very evidence that he was the true Messiah. You say, that doesn't make any sense. It says in the Old Testament, anyone who is on a tree is cursed of God. He was on a tree. He was cursed of God. And Paul says, that's my point. That's the whole point. We deserve the curse of God. Yes, even we Jews deserve the curse of God. And of course, the Gentile pagans, we all deserve God's wrath and judgment because we've never obeyed Him as we should. Jesus bore God's wrath on the tree that we might die to sin and live to God. This is what God's plan was. Just like David suffered long before he was exalted to the throne. Just like Joseph suffered many years in obscurity before he was exalted to the right hand of the king to save his people. So the son of David, Jesus, suffered many years at the hands of his own countrymen and was actually put not in a pit like Joseph was, but in the grave and was exalted to the right hand, not of Pharaoh. He was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And now he gives not just bread and grain and famine, but living bread for all who are starving in their sin for salvation. And I, I could just see Paul walking through the Psalms. This son of David, this son of Solomon, who will reign from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, all the obedience of the nations will come to him. We're even told they're going to bring incense and myrrh and gold and things like that. And you can maybe even hear Paul reciting the Christmas story. I don't know what all he would have done. But he's saying, listen, look at the text of the Old Testament. Look at the, look at the ark. Look at the near sacrifice of Isaac. Look at the life of David. Look at all these trajectories and prophecies. The king coming into Jerusalem humble on a donkey in a Zechariah. And, and then God's saying in Zechariah, the day is coming when they will pierce me. How can you pierce God? God doesn't have a body. He's spirit. The day is coming, God says, when they will pierce me, and they will look upon me and grieve. And then in that day... There will be a fountain opened in the house of Israel so that we could all be washed of our sins and uncleanness. What is that about? I can hear Paul say. What, what is that referring to? What do you think that is? God came as a man and was literally pierced, pierced in his hands and pierced in his feet, pierced in his side where blood and water came out. Guess what? The, the, the opening that Zechariah predicted of a fountain to wash you, it comes out of the side of Jesus, blood and water. His blood will cleanse you like water from all your sins. And Paul passionately pleads from the text, being clear giving evidence and explaining clearly what was said. So number one, reasoning with proofs is what Paul was doing. Now number two, I'm going I'm to sort of skip past verse four. We'll come back to verse four. Verse four is the positive part. Acts 17, four. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, that's God-fearers who were in the synagogue, and not a few leading women. Just a couple points here. Number one, they were persuaded from Paul's argument based in the Bible. It was the text of the Old Testament and Paul's pointing to Jesus from the Old Testament that led them to Christ. I mean, it's like we're in 2 Timothy right now. And what does Paul say to Timothy? Remember who taught you the Word and how from childhood you were acquainted with the sacred writings which are able… He's talking about… By the way, when Paul says to Timothy, you grew up hearing the Scriptures, which testament is he talking about? It's got to be the Old because he's writing the New Testament right now, okay? So, it hasn't been finished. He's talking mainly about the Old Testament, although I do think Paul argues that Luke's gospel is Scripture, but that's another story, okay, uh, from 1 Timothy. Anyways, so Paul's saying, listen, you, were, you grew up at your mother's lap and your grandmother's lap reading the Old Testament. They taught you these Scriptures. And what does he say? 
that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says, all Scripture is God-breathed. So, Paul is arguing carefully from the Old Testament. I just want to say, we, we need to love the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of Jesus. The Old Testament is primarily pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament is a story that ends at Act 3 out of a five-act play. It ends in Act 3 with all the cliffhangers, and Jesus comes and resolves them in a way that was in some ways unforeseen, and yet in some ways as plain as the nose on your face. In some sense, no one really saw it coming, but once it happened, how could you deny it once Jesus came and fulfilled this story and brought it to its surprising but yet uh, wonderful uh, ending uh, in light of the Old Testament? And then we're told that they joined, verse 4, they joined Paul and Silas. John Stott says there's no such thing in the New Testament as an unchurched Christian. They joined Paul and Silas. They, they put their name in, in with Paul and Silas. They were part of the church. You want to call that church membership? That's fine. But they, they said, we're on this team. We're, we're part of the church in Thessalonica. They, they joined Paul and Silas, which includes joining the church. Uh, the idea of an unchurched Christian after Pentecost is not there in the New Testament. It, it just assumes if you're a Christian in Philippi, you're part of the Philippian church. And if you're a Christian in Thessalonica, you're, you're part of the Thessalonican church. That's what, what, what happened. So, we, we need each other uh, with the local body. Okay, point, point number two, reacting with prejudice. Reacting with prejudice. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now, just stop here for a second. Flip with me in Acts, just back to chapter 13 for a moment. Remember Paul's sermon there in that, uh, in, uh, in, I believe it's Pisidian Antioch, Acts 13, and look at verse 44 and 45, the reaction there after he preaches from the Old Testament to Jesus. Acts 13, 44, so after that Sabbath, they go the next Sabbath, and there's a large crowd. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, now pause there. That's the prejudice I'm talking about. Now, in a post-World War II, post-Holocaust world, I understand people hear this and they go, wait, are, are you, what are you trying to say? Because it says the Jews. Okay, just real quick on that. Um, it's not referring to all Jews because Paul himself is a Jew, right? Okay, Jesus is a Jew. Every author of the Bible is a Jew except perhaps Luke. Uh, so, uh, this is not anti-Jewish in any sense. What it's referring to is this thing where the majority of Israel is hardened right now between the time of Christ's first and second coming. The majority of Israel is hardened, and we believe there will be a time when that hardening is taken away and a the majority of Israel is saved uh, before at the time of the return of Christ. So, here it's simply referring to that, but I, the point here is not the Jewishness per se. What I want to get at is the motives. Look again at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, you, you see, it doesn't say when they heard Paul's arguments and they saw they were unbiblical, they began to counteract him with Scripture. Paul's arguments weren't unbiblical. That's the problem. His arguments were powerfully biblical. They, they didn't… It wasn't that. Instead, it was a motive. They were prejudiced. They had a jealousy about Paul. Why? Because their synagogue wasn't huge, 
And when Paul shows up, he preaches one sermon in the second week of the synagogue. They don't have enough places for people to sit. They probably had to meet outside is what commentators think because perhaps hundreds if not thousands of people show up the very next week to hear Paul. So now Paul is this all-star here. He's got this huge crowd up front. Now, he doesn't know that you know, Paul also gets beat up a lot, so you don't want to be, you know, you may not like to be Paul's life, but Paul's preaching, huge crowd shows up. And so they, it's not about the argument, it's about we don't like that Paul is very popular right now. We don't like it. So they're prejudiced against his message, and they begin to counteract his message, not because it's unbiblical, but because they don't like his popularity. A similar thing happened to Jesus, did it not? When the crowds followed Jesus rather than the Pharisees, the Pharisees says, well, if we don't stop him, remember John chapter, I think it's 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, if we don't stop him, the whole world will follow after him. And what's going to happen to us? We're going to lose all of our position. And so this jealousy drove them, not actually an intellectual um, argument here. Okay, uh, also look real quick at um, chapter 14, verse… 19. You see a similar thing here. Paul leaves one town and goes to the other, and it says, when the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, uh, they came and they persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. So, you'll see again that they like to sometimes travel from city to city following Paul as he goes. Okay, now, what, what, do, we, what do we make of this passage? Let's go back to Acts 17. Just show you a quick picture here. Um, one commentator, Eckhart Schnabel, thinks that this is the place where Paul was dragged. It's hard to know with total certainty, but this would be called the Agora or the Roman Forum uh, in Thessalonica. The ruins have not been completely excavated in the city because there is a modern city, Thessaloniki, which sits right where Thessalonica sat. So you can't do full excavations, but this part has been excavated. If you can see that, I can show you another picture there. And th this is, uh, they think that Paul was brought almost certainly to this area when he's being, when he was, uh, or when Jason was dragged to this area when they were questioning him uh, in this particular scene. So look with me again, verse 5 of Acts 17. But when the Jews were, were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, namely Jesus. Now, I, I can't get over the irony of this. Look at middle of verse 6, here's their accusation. These men have, you could say, like unsettled the world, uh, turned the world upside down, uh, something like that. They've turned the world upside down. Okay, now pause there. So their opening accusation is these guys are troublemakers. They're shaking everything up. They're causing chaos. They're turning the world upside down while they are uh, starting a riot. Now just think about this for a second. The accusation is you guys are troublemakers, so what do they do to prove that? They go get a bunch of guys in the marketplace with nothing to do and they rile them up into a frenzy. They start a riot in the city. And then they go to this guy Jason's house where apparently Paul was staying with Silas, and also they, the house church probably started in Jason's house because they couldn't be at the synagogue anymore. They'd been kicked out of the synagogue. So at Jason's house where he's perhaps hosting this church and where Paul's living, they can't find them. So they, they drag this guy out into the streets and start accusing him and Paul and others. So they start a, a violent riot, and then they said the problem with these guys is that they're starting violent riots. Do you see the, the irony in this? Paul, does Paul start riots? No. 
people start riots about Paul, but Paul does not start riots. That's one of the whole points of the book of Acts is Paul's saying, I want to keep the peace. I don't want this to happen. I don't want you guys to be starting a riot. But once again, uh, they are accusing him of upsetting the order of the city, but they're the ones that are actually starting a riot. So you see a double standard or some duplicity in what they, in what they, in what they say. So let me, let me ask you and, and, and maybe someone listening online, if, if, you're, not a, if you're not a believer uh, and, and you're, uh, or maybe you know someone who's not a believer, it is not all the time, but it is not uncommon that the reasons that they perhaps give you for why they don't believe in Jesus are really not the real reasons why they don't believe in Jesus. Um, what I mean is, it could just be that they had, you know, someone could say, I don't like, I don't, I don't believe in the God of the Bible because there's so much suffering in this world, and I just don't believe that a good God would allow that much suffering. And someone may say that sincerely. They may be going through something very difficult, and they may completely mean that statement. But some people may use that as a smokescreen or some other excuse. Um, I'll keep this vague. Not, I just don't want to be specific. But I had an interaction recently with someone who disagrees with some things I believe about the Bible. That's <laughs> very vague. Okay? So I had an interaction with somebody who, who, who does not like some things that I believe about the Bible, especially regarding sexual ethics, okay? which I don't think is… I, don't, I think what I said was just directly scriptural, but… and, and this person was, was not pleased with me, and a person a- accused me of some character problems that I had. Now, I, listen, I've got all kinds of character problems, okay? I'll probably own the character problems, but this person was very angry, like, like I could feel the heat, and, and they, were, they were kind of coming at me, and, and uh, they, they, they kind of gave a… Um, uh, the, the reason they gave that they were mad had to do more with my… My, uh, my method of how I was talking about these truths rather than with my message of what I was saying. And you say, why, why are you saying all this? Okay, well, here's my point. Um, just can't judge the heart, but I'm just going to take a, a guess here. My guess is that the person who was quite angry at my, uh, what I, about really at me, um, I think they were actually angry at what the Bible says about sexual ethics. And I think they were furious that I would say it out loud or say it publicly. And so, but they knew it doesn't sound quite right to say publicly, I hate what the Bible says about sexuality. That doesn't sound very good. Or I disagree with Jesus on marriage. I mean, that sounds kind of, whoa. Or, or I don't like the fact that you said what Scripture says about sexuality. You can't say that. So, what do they say? They attacked my character. And I thought, interesting. I don't think that was the main problem. I think the main problem was what the Bible says and that I was actually saying it. I think that's why they were really mad. But they couldn't say that because it sounds like you can't say, I hate what the Bible does. It sounds like. So instead, you attack the person's character. You have, if you notice that this is often true, when you don't have a great argument, you attack the person. It's called an ad hominem, right? A logical fallacy where you say, well, I think Vody Bauckham used to say, you know, you're, you know you're probably on the better side of an argument when someone says, well, yeah, you, but you, you're ugly. <laughs> it's probably, probably a good sign that you, you have some good reasons on your side. If they can't answer your reasons, they will attack your person. And I'm not saying there's never a reason to attack the character of a Christian. There are times Christians act in a way that they should not. But I'm just telling you, very often, the reasons someone gives publicly for why they are not a Christian are not the same as the actual reasons in their heart. And that needs to be something we're aware of. These particular people, these, this, this group of Jewish people from the synagogue, they say that the primary problem is that Paul is in disobedience to Caesar. Just like the Pharisees, remember, when Jesus is about to be crucified, they go, well, he claims to be a king, but we have no king but Caesar. 
You think the Pharisees like Caesar? In reality, they hate Caesar. They don't get, can't stand, they want Caesar off their back. They, they can't stand him. In their heart of hearts, they actually despise Caesar. They don't want Caesar, the Pharisees. But that's the public reason they gave to Pilate. But what was their real reason? Pilate discerned that it was because of jealousy that they were handing him over to them. The reason they gave publicly was a smokescreen for the inward motive. And I, I just want to challenge, if, if anyone's not a believer, just examining your own heart on some of these things, why is it that you don't believe in Jesus truly? What's the real reason beneath the reason perhaps that you've given uh, out loud? Is, is, there a, is there a prejudicial reason? Perhaps it's, I had a bad experience, or I, you know, I, I grew up in a church with a bunch of hypocrites, or whatever it may be, and I, I'm not dismissing that that could happen, but because there might have been hypocrites in the church you grew up in, does that prove that Jesus could not have risen from the dead? No. I mean, you, you may have had a horrible youth pastor, seriously. Uh, there may have been an abusive youth pastor that you grew up with. That's possible, and that's horrific if that happened. Uh, I've, I've heard cases of abuse that's just hard to believe with, with that kind of stuff. Okay, if that happened, that is horrific, and that needs to be dealt with. But does that prove that Jesus is not risen from the dead? No. Would, what would Jesus think about an abusive youth pastor? He would not be in agreement. He, he would say, that is, doing evil deeds in my name would be his highest condemnation, much like when he went into the temple with the, with the whip. Uh, and so, J- Jesus would say, okay, yeah, full of, church full of hypocrites, yeah, I, I disagree with that myself. So, we got, we got to get back to, is Jesus risen from the dead, and what is the ultimate reason for why I don't believe? All right, number three. Well, before I move on, just real quick, Paul, you know, he says, submit to your governing, governing authorities in Romans 13. He doesn't want to start riots. Uh, he, 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 he wants to be honorable insofar as he can be towards the government. So, these are misrepresentations and caricatures of what he was saying. All right, number three, repenting with uh, passion. And just turn with me now. We're going to leave Acts and uh, go to 1 Thessalonians to close. A few books to your right. 1 Thessalonians. Now, you'll remember… Paul has been traveling with Silas. Just to give you a little heads up, Silas's Latinized version of his name is Silvanus. So, if you ever see Silvanus in the New Testament, that is Silas. They're the same person, just two different ways to say his name. And then Timothy. So, Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy, they're the ones traveling together in Thessalonica. And let's look how the Thessalonian letter starts. Before I read this, just real quick, a few months have gone by since Acts 17. Paul has left, he went to Athens, and then after Athens, he went to Corinth. And this is just a few months later, maybe six months later, Paul's in Corinth with Silas and Timothy, and they write this letter back to the Thessalonians, who he just saw a few months earlier, but has not been able to see since their conversion, because he had to leave. 1 Thessalonians 1.1, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction." You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, remember last week's sermon, although we had suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we, know, uh, for, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ." But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Continue with me here for a moment. Verse 9 of chapter 2. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers." For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God that are uh, in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffer the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Skip to verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, remember he gets sent away by night, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, just pause here. Do you not feel the affection that Paul has for these people that he's known for maybe two months? This is supernatural. This is what God does in His people. They are converted, most of them, out of sheer paganism. Paul loves them like a mother and like a father. He is affectionate with them, sharing his whole life with them along with the gospel. He gets to know them so well that to even be torn away from them, he says, you're out of sight, but you're not out of mind. I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. And then, I'm going too long on this, but I I don't care. (laughs) Hang on one second. Listen to this. So Paul, Paul, a few months go by, and Paul doesn't have any updates about how they're doing in Thessalonica. And he doesn't know. He knows they're suffering. They got that political stuff going on where they're they're, they're facing real suffering. They are facing suffering from the day they become Christians, right? When Jason gets dragged before the authorities, it says the brothers with him, which means the new Christians who just became Christians, they've been a Christian for what, three weeks? They got dragged. I mean, They're facing persecution from the get-go as soon as they became Christians. So Paul is worried the rocky soil receives the word with joy, 
But when tribulation comes because of the Word, it immediately falls away because it has no root. He's afraid that they might be rocky soil Christians, that they might fall away with persecution. So Paul, he can't text them. He can't email them. He can't call them. He can't even go there because Satan is hindering them. So finally, he sent Timothy to find out how they're doing. And just listen, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Pause. This is why Christians desperately need, from the moment they become Christians, we need a theology of God's goodness and sovereignty in suffering because they would have been blown over if they didn't know that we were destined for these sufferings. This is part of God's good plan for His people. Verse 6, verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And the end of this chapter, now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. That's just a beautiful picture, but I've got to finish the sermon. So look at chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves, this is chapter 1, verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay, first thing to say here is this. There is a day coming where God, as a good judge, will bring His wrath on those who do not know and trust His Son. God does this because He is good and just, and if you've broken the law, and you stand before the judge, the judge will bring justice. And the most urgent thing you can know is that one day you will stand before God who will judge the living and the dead, and if we are not safe in Christ, we will be exposed in our own emptiness and sin, and we will face His judgment, but not if we turn to Christ. They repented with passion. They turned, from God, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true, true God. Whatever you are living for, you may not go to an idol temple. You may have never been to an idol temple in your life. You may have never in your life bowed down to a piece of wood or stone, chiseled or gold or silver. That may sound primitive and absurd to worship an idol. But I'm telling you that we are all born bowing down to created things. It may not be an Asherah pole like it was for the Israelites and the Philistines. It may not be Dagon that we're bowing down and worshiping. It may not be one of those gods, Beelzebub or something. It may not be that. It may be for you that you love and are obsessed with money, 
just think about it all the time. It just consumes you, and you think if you have more money, you'll be happy one day. And I'm telling you, that idol is not living. That idol is dead. It has eyes but cannot see. It cannot save. Whatever it is we've been living for, listen, anything other than Jesus that we are investing our all in, that we are leaning towards, trusting in, waiting on, anticipating as our be-all, end-all, the thing that will give us relief and ultimate satisfaction and joy and identity and purpose, whatever that thing is, is your God. That is your idol. That That is what you are living for in reality, and it will lead to a dead end because no God other than Jesus is alive and can save, truly. It may be a relationship. It may be whatever. If we will turn from trusting in those things, repent, throw that to the side, and run into the arms of Jesus, the living and true God, we will be forgiven, saved from fear of future wrath, we will have a right standing with God, and we will have the satisfaction of our soul forever because He alone can do what idols promise but cannot do, which is give ultimate and final fulfillment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when we are in the evangelistic mode of life, God, give us confidence in Your Word. Help us to open Your Word and just to explain what it means clearly, carefully, with patience and love, with kindness and joy, but with conviction and and clarity. If, If any of us in any way are resisting what Scripture teaches, maybe not whether the gospel's true, maybe it's on a lesser issue, but if we're resisting what Scripture teaches because of any prejudice or any, any sort of thing that's wrong in our desires or affections. Maybe we want something we shouldn't, and so we are manipulating the Bible to justify getting it. Got to get rid of our, of our empty and even sinful prejudices and help us to believe what Your Word truly says. And Lord, for all of us who struggle with idols, what people think about us, how good we are at something, how how, uh, how hard uh, something may be, how much we accomplish. God, help us to see that while many of these things are good things, they are not God. And help us not to trust in them, but to turn and to trust in You, the living and true God, who alone can save us, satisfy us, and keep us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.